Church, welcome once again to week two of You Can Do This. If you're new, we are doing something a little different during this series. We are having a conversation between myself and mine and Kristen's personal therapist, Hud McWilliams, and we are combining the biblical and the clinical. And these conversations have already proven to be beneficial and impactful. We are hearing stories from groups that are meeting throughout the week, as well as families just having deeper dialogue within the home. And so we are excited for you to join us. So here is week two of You Can Do This. Well, one thing that I'm just thrilled for you to share with others is uh, whether we call it the drama triangle or the victim paradigm, this is something that uh, I've seen you teach on and I just think it's brilliant. And so would you take us through what you would call as the drama triangle? Okay, I think uh, uh, the, the importance of this from my point of view is that uh, we live in a guilt and innocence culture. Uh, most of the cultures or many of the cultures in the world are shame, and honor cultures. Our culture- You're talking like East versus West. Right, yeah. pretty much. And But guilt and innocence uh, is where we, we look for somebody to blame and it's why our culture is so litigious. Uh, we, you know, we'll sue anybody for anything under any circumstances. Uh, and it's mind, kind of a mindset. And so the blame story or the blame triangle, it comes from that context and so it's promulgated by that but we're not the only culture that does it it just is more prominent here so uh, people have thought about this a lot so there's lots of ways to look at it but uh, the thing you need to know is that uh, the victim triangle feeds on itself and it stays alive over a long period of time so I like to draw it mm. and uh, maybe explain it then a, a little bit that way so uh, the triangle, the way it's drawn matters because the triangle point is at the bottom and that's where most of us find ourselves uh, in this and it's where you find the victim. And, the, and when we feel like we're a victim of something, we find ourselves uh, looking for somebody to blame, right? Uh, and usually the, the, the blameworthy figure is somebody that's perpetrated or bullied or powered up or we, we don't have, we feel less than, however you want to frame it. And so that's either a perpetrator or sometimes it's known as the villain, the bad guy, the guy that causes you to be a victim. And then in order to complete the triangle, you need somebody to step in and try to help. And we call that rescue. Mm. Now, I've been in the church my whole life and I'm in the business of trying to help people. And help then becomes a four-letter word, and I put it in quotes here. Uh, most of what we do in the church a lot of times is try to rescue victims. Hmm. Uh, the problem is it keeps people infant. It keeps people dependent. It keeps people kind of in a victim model. and you you actually want a healthy model. So I'm gonna draw another triangle here in a minute that gives you an alternative to this. Uh, the problem is most people function here because blame is such a fun game. You know, if I can blame you, then I don't have to take responsibility. If I can uh, 
if I can charge you with this, if I can be a victim of. And it's and, lazy, right? Like I, I've always said that blame is a lazy person's way of making sense out of chaos. It's I don't, I don't want to put in the work to deal with this issue. That's right. And if I can blame you, uh, it absolves me of having to take ownership, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, because I was traumatized, let's say, as a child, uh, therefore, I'm this way. Uh, I, I tell my own story a little bit in the book and uh, that I wrote and, and I talk about how my dad's history set him up to be insecure. And guess what I picked up as a child? I picked up insecurity. Do I have a reason to be insecure? Not like he did. Uh, no obvious cause for it, but I function out of insecurity and I can give you example after example out of my own life uh, well into my adult years. Mm. Am I insecure today? Yes. Why? Because I practice it for such a long time, I still carry it around, but I'm much more aware of it. And the awareness is a key ingredient in whether I stay here. I don't blame my dad. Okay. I take ownership now of the fact that that's a practiced bent of mine, and I can push back against it. I can say, oh, there it is again. You can just sit down here, you know, in security, yeah. and I'll talk to you later. So I wouldn't be doing this with you if I had acted out of that insecurity. I wouldn't, but I can be here even though I know that that's a component in my history. So I'm not blaming my dad, and that means I got off of this triangle in some way. Rescuing is what we call love a lot of times. Mm. And my profession, the helping profession, or ministry, yeah. or people in medicine, or even government, all that is a rescue-oriented mindset. And it's a product of the fall, actually. So when you, when you get into this role, Rescuing means that uh, we just, we're, we're gonna help these people. We're, and it's, it's kind of a power thing. I'm, I'm in a, I can, I'm gonna solve your problem. I'm gonna fix you. I'm gonna give you a, and a lot of self-help books come out of rescuing. It's a messiah complex though. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah, I'm the, I'm the. I'm the savior here. I'm the savior. So uh, one of the things that I would say, one of the phrases I would have you use is be actively anti-blame, anti-victim. Every time you feel you want to blame somebody or every wow. time you feel like a victim, identify it, push back against it, start asking some questions. Be anti-blame and anti-victim. Yes, so the, the healthy triangle, it flips this triangle up going the other direction. And it takes moves the victim up here at the very top now, instead of at the very bottom. And he, he or she is a creator. I just like the word. Uh, because we're made in the image of God, uh, the creator means that you take responsibility for your life. Uh, I'm trying to say that about my own life. I, I take responsibility for the fact that I'm a psychologist. I never chose to be one in a sense. Consciously, I didn't go after it thinking, oh my goodness, I need to do this. Uh, but I am. Is that rare? Because I, I feel like, like there was a point for me, I set out to become a pastor. Sure. So when you explain your experience, that, that seems unique to me. It is. It's weird. Okay. You know, but it's. it's. But you're not saying like that's how it should be forever. No, 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 okay. no, absolutely not. I mean, you know, yay God that he had you chosen and gave you that insight and then you moved toward it and embraced it, right? Uh, <sighs> I just think, in my case, that didn't happen, right? So it's just my case. Yeah. Thanks, that's a great corrective. Uh, 
But being a creator means that you take ownership of your choice, right? You still had to make that choice. I made a choice to be a psychologist. Yeah. Uh, I, I made it different than you, but it's still, I'm taking ownership. And that, that's what would go in the middle here. Own, ownership, okay. or responsibility. And when you take ownership or responsibility, it changes the dynamic radically from blame. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to say, I, you know, I didn't cause the cancer, but I'm gonna own how I deal with it. Yeah. Right? And that's what a creator does. They, they think creatively about the choices they have still in front of them. Maybe, maybe the choice is narrow because of an illness or narrow because of a lost job, but it doesn't mean you're choiceless. Yeah. And that was what Viktor Frankl talked about you know, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He says, you still have a choice. Nobody can take away the final choice. And the final choice is how you choose to look at something, how you yeah. choose to perceive something. Now, is that part of the, the faultiness in how we understand and interpret our trauma? Sure. That it's not to say trauma de doesn't exist or that you didn't have terrible experiences, but, but you still have a choice. And, and I think we live so, we've talked about this, that cause and effect where this type of experience always leads to this type of outcome. Well, no, that's not always the case. You right. have a choice in the matter. And I think some people, they're just, they're really cause and effect in their thinking. What we found out, uh, a major study done on trauma and victimhood out of uh, the sand wars in okay. the Middle East during uh, later in my life, uh, uh, they followed 10,000 soldiers that had been deployed into battle. And they found out that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, actually triggered unprocessed childhood trauma. Yeah. It was not the trauma of deployment and battle that was the, the major issue. It was what it triggered, and it triggered lack of development in a child, uh, which was stunning. Wow. Uh, so it means that something happens to us yeah. as children, and you can have two children grow up in the same family, one be traumatized and the other fine. And so it's the way the child perceives it. So that may be personality, it may be you know, DNA, structural resilience. Is that something you can teach? Sure. You know, like there's just not some people who are just instinctively wired with this type of perspective and outlook. This one's an optimist, this one's a pessimist. This is a behavior you can learn. Well, I, I, you can learn to be emotionally healthy, yes. Yeah. And I, I think wholeness demands it. So that's what we're talking about yeah. here. So this upper triangle is a healthy triangle. And the, and the thing I'd like to emphasize here is the difference between rescuing and nurturing somebody. Yeah. And I think it's, it's something that happens to us theologically a lot of times. We want God to rescue us, and many of our prayers are rescue me prayers, right? Bless me prayers, fix me prayers, get me out of this, find me a parking space, you wow. know, heal this disease, whatever, which is not wrong. However, I think God primarily wants to nurture us. He wants us to take responsibility because he made us what? In his image, like him. Yeah. And he wants us to take ownership and he calls us co-creators and co-participants, co-regents in this world. So we are to bring in the kingdom. We are to cooperate with him. We are to be in league with him. And he, Jesus goes so far as to call us his friends. 
wow. in John 15. And, and a lot of times when we, talk, when we talk about that passage, I've had pastors push back against that over and over again saying, I can't teach that. People think that's too uh, flippant about the Godhead, but God yeah. wants to what? Eat dinner with you and I don't know. But would you even say that hints at the pastor's development? Sure. Because no, you can't teach on something you're not confident that you've experienced yourself. Well, you can teach on it, sadly. Yes. And, but it's, if it's not true in your life, there's a disconnect, right? And that's and, what they're expressing, right? Yes. I think, I think so often wholeness is not, it's not what we go after. We go after something that will sell or something, you know, and I've done this my whole life. I've, I've slowly learned that I've got to put this stuff into practice in my own life or I don't want to talk about it because if it's, if it's not authentic, if it's not real, if I can't trust it, I don't want to say it to you and say, oh yeah, this is posture this way and you'll, you'll feel better. I want, I want it to be substantive. I want it to be transformative in your life. I want you to be able to access wholeness regardless of your history, regardless of your personality, yeah. regardless of your experience. Yeah. And then over here is a coach. Uh, so these are movements of health away from uh, being a perpetrator is to being a coach, taking the same energy and redeeming it. So this is a redemptive view of the very same thing that we're talking about here. But most people get caught in this now, is what, like, so say you're someone in, currently as the victim, you've been through something, you're placing blame. Is the advice to say, as the individual, you need to go find a coach or a nurturer? Yeah, yeah, but more, more than that, you need to take ownership yeah. of what has happened to you so your story is clear. Uh, what happens to most victims, if they don't deal with their own stuff internally, they become villains or perpetrators. Yeah. So, because it's what they know. They experienced it, and unless it's broken up somehow and moved to responsibility and ownership, uh, they stay in this blame model, and then they wind up playing all three roles here eventually. Which is, it makes me think of David and Saul throwing spears at him, you know, and Absolutely. the ability to not pick one up and throw it back. Well, and the, yeah, that is, and, and look at what Abigail did with him. You know, when he wanted to vindicate himself, yeah. uh, said this was unfair, and, he, and it was unfair. Well, being a victim is unfair by definition. Hmm. And he was saying, this is unfair. I'm gonna bring about justice. And Abigail said, don't you vindicate yourself. Yeah. And to David's credit, he listened to her. And Man, so- it's such a message just for, I think the body of Christ at large, don't you vindicate yourself. Let God do it. Let God do it. That's Romans 12. He actually says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You let go of it. Our natural tendency is to blame and then yeah. to bring about justice. I live with a gal that likes justice and she hates unfairness and she knows where that came from. It came from her own history. And, and it just, it's triggered every time something's unfair. You know, the guy didn't do his job at the, the mechanic didn't change the oil the right way or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Or the, or the milk's bad and so we have to take it back to the store or, you know, whatever. And there's some truth to all that stuff, but the bottom line is you want to be healthy? Yeah. You're going to, you're going to take ownership here and you're going to realize that the world is fallen and broken and doesn't, doesn't go in a straight line and it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. 
and you have to adapt to it and you are to bring love into that setting. You are to absorb the craziness of the world just like the cross absorbed yeah. our sin so that we can what? Participate in this world in a more robust, healthy, full-orbed way. And you think about the disciples. This yeah. is still blows me away today. The disciples moved from thinking like this, this bottom triangle, to taking ownership, and guess what happened to them? All but one of them was martyred. Yeah. And, and Jesus said, I, you're gonna have more power than I have, and you're gonna do greater things than I do. And they all died. And we would consider that a failure, but we don't talk about that very much. Yeah. We, we want this miraculous working power, quote unquote, to rescue us. And here's what Paul says in Colossians 1.11. He's praying for these churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, same prayer, it's pretty much. Colossians 1.11 says, I pray that you will have all power. Think all power, man, I want all yeah. power. Why, to rescue? He mm. says, no, to patiently endure. So what I, most people, if they're given all power, don't, don't want to put it in patience and endurance yeah. <laughs> or perseverance, right? They want, to, they want to put it into rescuing, changing something, making it right. So talk about, because I think a lot of times, a lot of people find themselves in that rescue or nurture tension. That's right. Someone comes to them, you know, and they're in that victim mindset and they need help. What advice do you have for the person to say, I, I'm not gonna become a rescuer, I'm not gonna become enabling, I'm not going to permit this person to stay stuck in this framework. What are practical things they can do to choose being a nurturer over a rescuer? Okay, so uh, in the bottom triangle, uh, the rescuer wants to solve okay. or fix the issue. So, so solutions become the major thing. I was a professor for a long time in university, and what I know our education does is it forces people to try to learn to have a solution for everything. Well, that's a linear thinking process. It's not wrong, and it, it, I'm, I'm glad there's closed systems like a, a plane, for instance. I'm glad I, I'm gonna fly home tomorrow, and I want the plane not to make a decision on the runway for one engine to say, I don't wanna go on this. Okay. You know, I want, I want it to do what it's supposed to do. So there are places, but in in living, where living isn't a problem to be fixed or solved. Living is a problem, uh, is is a challenge to deal with the tension that's caused by, hmm. you know, being a being victimized in some way. Well, being victimized doesn't necessarily make you a victim. It just means that you have to deal with it, and so. Uh, it's not your fault you're a victim, but it is your fault if you stay there. So the rescuer, which is our... And, you, and do you find that a lot of people in that victim space are offended by what you just said? Sure, sure, good, good catch. But as a nurturer, and I would say that would have to be the distinction in the nurture, a rescuer doesn't tell them that. A nurturer says you can't stay there. Yeah, a, a nurturer comes alongside I find myself writing sometimes to people now and I say, I'm alongside of you. I can't fix you. Mm. I can't get you out of the pain you're in. Yeah. You know, you lost your wife or this dastardly thing happened to you or, or you're going through this awful thing. I can only offer them 
me. I can't fix it. I can't bring that person back to life, etc. We think those are the solutions. Or you can't take, you know, and this is something that like I, I've struggled with where there's a difference between taking care and caretaking. Mm -hmm. Like you can, you can be caring and you can be thoughtful and you can be gentle, but a caretaker like moves into the house. A caretaker is with you in the middle of the night. They're making breakfast, doing your laundry. I mean, they're, they're assuming an abnormal amount of responsibility. And I think that's the temptation is to take too much responsibility to the point of allowing them to never take ownership. Yeah, so they become dependent on you and you feel strong. Which is the rescuer secretly is validated by. And uh, this is my business. I'm in the business of, quote, helping people. Uh, but the question is, am I going to help them trying to rescue them, solve their problem, fix it? Or am I going to try to help them become stronger in the way that they deal with their own life in a, in a more robust way so they take ownership and they're not uh, uh, they're not working out of uh, scarcity. They're working out of abundance. And that's exactly what the biblical message is. God says, you know, he says, I came that you may have life in full now, yeah. now or in abundance. One of either, either words translated, uh, full, full life. He's not saying, well, I came so you could have mostly good stuff. No, full. And I take that means full. Yeah. And that means full in a fallen world. That means that I can, I can grapple with the, the tribulation that's in the world. And that's what he says. Yeah. He says, take heart, doesn't he? He says, take heart. I've overcome the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's not an option. Hmm. So you will have tribulation. Are you going to be on the victim end of it? Or are you going to take ownership? So tell me, like... I'm I'll tell you a story and you just give me feedback okay. whether or not this was the right approach or helpful at all. So years ago, Chris and I were, were pastoring a church and a couple comes and asks if they can meet with us. And so we go out to dinner with them and, and they share a, a, a pretty unique situation that they'd gone through. And it was regarding their marriage. And so Chris and I, you know, we said, hey, we're, we're committed to come alongside you guys. And, and how we're gonna do so is we're gonna read a book together. And so here's what we're gonna do. Let, let's, let's read this book. Chris and I will read it. The two of you read it. And then let's, let's find time once you know, we're done reading it to get back together and dis discuss the book. Um, mainly because what they were going through wasn't a part of mine and Kristen's experience. So we're like, hey, we, we should probably inform ourselves as well. Sure. So Chris and I dig through this book and the couple starts reaching out to us a few weeks later. Like, hey, can we get that dinner on the calendar? And I asked him, I said, well, have you read the book? And I said, no, we haven't got around to the book yet, um, but we, we need to lock down this dinner. And I said, well, again, let's, let's stick to the plan. You gotta read the book. And this became a thing where like they just wouldn't read the book, but they still wanted to meet. And maybe it was stubbornness, but I just couldn't give in and be like, <laughs> all right, let's meet even though you're not doing your part. So eventually the family left the church. And I was like torn by that, but also perplexed. Here, Kristen and I were reading a book for your marriage uh, that they weren't willing to do themselves. Now, 
Was that poor leadership? Is there things that I could have done better in that moment? Uh, I, I feel like that's somewhere in the tension of rescuing and nurturing and, and getting them to take ownership. It triggers the thought. There's this great parable of Jesus facing the rich young ruler and the guy says, what must I do to be saved? Mm. And Jesus says, well, you've got to do the law. And the most arrogant statement, maybe in all of scripture comes back, yeah. I've done the law. Oh, really? Right. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but I would. I would have said yeah. that. That's why about Jesus. Anyway, I said, really? Anyway, uh, and then Jesus kind of ignores that. Hmm. And because the guy, it's like, well, I answered your question. What more do you want? You know, now I answer mine. Uh, and so uh, Jesus says, well, in your case, because you're addicted to or you're worshiping stuff, you need yeah. to liquidate your stuff, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away. Mm. And it's fascinating what Jesus does. He lets him walk away. Wow. He's not yelling yeah. at him as he goes down the street saying, hey, I'm Jesus, you're missing this. This is a big opportunity, guess yeah. what? 10 more seconds, 10 more steps, and it's off the table. You know, I mean, none of that. He lets him go. Mm. And I, my hunch is he's allowing him to face the consequences of his own choice. Yeah more fully than he would have had Jesus chased him down. And we're more likely to see that guy in heaven, I think, than if Jesus would have rescued him. Yeah. And Jesus didn't heal everybody. And all healing, as I think C.S. Lewis says, or maybe it's Francis Schaeffer or both of them, uh, all healing is limited. None of it's perfect and none of it's complete. And Lazarus died again after being raised from the dead. And mm. would, it make, would it make it less of a miracle if Lazarus died within 30 minutes rather than 30 days? You know, I mean, absolutely Which not. Which is a super funny story to think about. Well, it I is. wonder what it was like the second time he passed it. It is, you're going, <laughs> why did I have to die seat. again? My gosh, this is awful, you yeah. know? That's hilarious. I just think you, but we don't think about that stuff in, yeah. a, in kind of real time. And so, uh, what what this did for me is it, I begin to realize most people like being here because it's a godlike position. If I can blame and be a victim, that's yeah. all legal talk. If I take ownership, that's freedom talk. That's talk about actual accessing joy regardless of my circumstances. This is being a victim of my circumstances, whether they be perpetrated on me or I just live in them or whatever. Uh, why, why do the happiest people in the world happen to be the poorest in many cases? Mm -hmm. You know, here we are, some of the richest people in the world, yeah. and we're not very happy. And even, even the, anyway, we could just go on and talk about all those stories. But this, this component is super helpful if we just pause just a second, take a breath, do a little reflection, and realize this is what I'm made for. This, this is nurturing something as an art form. Yeah. Rescuing is a power play, you know. Sometimes we need to be rescued, I get that. That's yeah. not wrong, but you don't want to stay there. Yeah, these two seem nuanced. Rescuing and nurturing, there's that distinction that you have to figure out. This side, I, I think is, you know, obviously you can, you can tell a villain, you can tell a perpetrator, right? A bully, yeah. But the coach, distinguish between nurture and coach, well, uh, I got to coach a team, a high school football team. And uh, because I was so insecure as a kid, I didn't like being coached because 
coaching always felt like they were telling me I was doing something wrong. Yeah. I needed to fix something. I was bad, you know. I mean, that's how I felt. Uh, I listened to two of the major pro players being interviewed, and the, the interviewer said, I have one last question for you before he went away at the end of this interview. And there were two, two different sports, and, and uh, they were at the peak. They were at the pinnacle of those sports. You'd know them if I yeah. told you their names. And I, I, uh, he said, what do you think about coaching, being coached? And they said, we can't get enough of it at this level. We, we desperately need it because all the nuances in our game de demand it, but we, we can't find people to coach us most of the time. Yeah. And a coach never gets to put, put his foot on the field. So I used to say to my team, I can be in shape, I can know the other team, I can be prepared, I can know the strategy for the game, I can be ready, but I can't play the game. You're the only ones that can be on the field. Yeah. And I think that's what the coach does. The coach comes alongside just like the nurturer, and he's saying, this is what I see, this is, these are options, here's some vehicles you could use, this yeah. is another way to work out, you can strengthen your ankle this way, or you know, get ready for the game this way, or whatever. Uh, I think the nurturing role, and you, you gotta tell me if I'm wrong on this, that one seems more organic. There's, there's people in your life who, by relationship, can serve in that purpose. I think the coach one seems to be a role that sometimes you have to seek out. You do. Mentorship, you do. therapist, counselor, coach, consultant. And I think where it seems to me people come up short is in order for this to be effective, you have to give somebody access and authority in your life. You, you have to give someone the right to to challenge you, to, to speak into your situation, to lay before you things that would challenge you in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting that I think sometimes Hollywood has this better figured out than the church. <laughs> you know, you can see it in the cast of shows. If you think of like Rocky, he has Adrian, the nurturer, and Mickey, the coach. You know, Star Wars, you've got Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi helping out, you know, Luke Skywalker in a sense. I the the necessity of those roles, but I, I do think this one is, um, it requires more intentionality, more humility, and you taking the initiative. I think you're right. I think that is, uh, uh, you've got to want to be coached, right? I didn't want to be coached when I was a young player, and I missed a great opportunity to be a better ball player as a result. And at the end of my, quote, career, which was, you know, didn't go very far, but anyway, yeah. at the end of my career, uh, I was finally ready to be coached, and I was done. And I just thought, man, you stepped all over your feet, you know, wow. in the process. I had an opportunity for somebody to come alongside and really help develop me, and I could have been a better player. I played naturally and yeah. got away with it a lot of times. But this is, this is the fierce independence piece uh, when we avoid that in some way. And what I say to pastors a lot of times, yeah. okay, so who's your pastor? Yeah. Because every pastor needs a pastor. That's right. And uh, very few pastors have one. Like a, a genuine one. A genuine one. Yep. Uh, that's outside of the circle of their immediate. A lot immediate. of surfacy relationships. That's right. But like, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so, so if, you just, if you just step back just a little bit, we're designed to be in this relational community that f feeds healthiness rather than uh, 
Ill, illness and sickness. And this is about hiding things. This is about exposing things. And a coach helps expose them in some way. Yeah. So when you make, like you say, when I ask you, when I, when I give you some accountability in my life, some authority in my life, some yeah. access to my life, some place that I can get feedback from you, uh, I, wanted, I wanted my, my elder board to give me feedback about my sermons. Yeah. And they wouldn't do it. It was just crazy making. By the way, I did find some people that were more than willing to give me feedback. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't always happy about it, but at least I got it, you know. Uh, but it wasn't the you know, I've never had to really solicit for feedback. <laughs> I, I tend to just get it. <laughs> get it. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I, I don't know, maybe my stance or something. I don't know what I did, but, but I just think uh, good feedback's really hard to get. Yeah. And the higher you go in, in an organization, the more stratified the organization is, the more difficult it is to get honest, integrous, substantive feedback that's really helpful yeah. strategy-wise and for the whole organization. And it takes a growing sense of self to be able to do that. Otherwise, yeah. you've gotta, you're gonna be down here defending yourself in some way. Yeah, wow, that's so good. And uh, justification is down here. People justify all the time. Mm -hmm. and and they have excuses. And those would be down here on this bottom triangle. Up on the top are maybe an explanation for what happened, but no excuse, because I'm, I'm still working on taking ownership. Yeah, and it all comes back to th this idea of humility. That's right. Like this, is, this is a humble process. To move up, to be up here is humble. Uh, Jim Collins wrote this book, Good to Great, about organizations, and then he wrote another book about in NCOs or you know nonprofits, and he found the same thing. The, the greatest leaders had the same two qualities. They were fierce learners across the board, yeah. constantly, both learning about their organization and the people in it and the industry and just general learning. And, and then he said the second thing was they were so humble they seemed shy. That's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. But but it's. It should be true of every discipline, it seems like to me. Uh, a true scientist should be humbled by his discipline because it's so much bigger than he is. Yeah. And look at what we're doing today. We've, we've got AI coming that thinks <laughs> quicker than most people can think. Mm -hmm. And I just wrote a little article about artificial intelligence and this one guy said he thinks in 10 years, most people's best friend will be a robot because it'll be the one that makes you feel the best, uh, reads you the, the quickest, adapts to your own personality and idiosyncrasies and whatever else. And Someone we've even, who fits perfectly with all your imperfections. We found it with th therapy. We've had robot therapists that actually make people quote unquote feel better than a normal therapist does. I, my goal is not to make you feel better. My goal is to make you better. Yeah, that is terrifying. The, what it does is it immediately dwarfs our development. That's there, right. There's no iron sharpened iron, you know, and that's, we're, we're losing the ability to, to dialogue. We're losing the ability to be in relationship with people who are different, think different. Um, and the idea that like an AI robot would be a person's best friend and the fact that that's becoming a goal is, Absolutely. Absolutely. Just alarming to me. It's terrifying, actually. And uh, the good side of it, 
the beauty of that yeah, technology. Yeah, tell me what the good side of that is. <laughs> well, well, the beauty of the technology is that it moves the technological world along, you know. So, like, my wife went and had a crown put in her mouth, you know, and she's she's got more money in her mouth than we have in the bank. But uh, this last crown took 40 minutes to make, and it used to take 40 days, right? And that's that's the beauty of the speed at which computers work and technology. Yeah, but I think my frustration, I could be wrong about this, but I watched this thing recently and they're showing how there's these AI platforms that can just spit content out. Absolutely. So this guy was like, hey, check this out. And he, he's like, I want to write a song. I want it to be a Christian song and I want it to be, you know, worship genre and I, I want it to be about the cross. And he, he fills out this little thing and then he hits submit and within seconds. Here it is it spits out a theologically correct song that was pretty good. It's like, yeah, I could hear us singing that. But what frustrated me about it is somebody surrendered their artistic ability. Someone forfeited their God-given potential to participate in the art. And instead they just clicked a button. And I, it just drove me crazy. And I, I seen the same thing with Someone like was showing how you could like write a book really quickly doing this. Well, plagiarize. And it was just <laughs> maddening. Okay, so here's here's a piece of the puzzle that I just think is enormous, actually, if we could capture it. Uh, healthy people are unpredictable. Hmm. Pathology, sick people are predictable. And it seems that seems counterintuitive and just the opposite. So every time I get with somebody that has some kind of addictive quality, whether they're addicted to alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography or food or shopping or prayer, it doesn't matter what they are addicted to. Yeah. The addiction cycle is the same, it's boring. So I would say all pathology is boring and predictable and all health is unpredictable. Well, what the AI will do is it, it's based on guessing predictability in a, in a human and it will make its adaptation to that because we can gather, you know, reams of data about people or how they think, et cetera. And so uh, the frightening part is we're gonna have a whole culture that can't write, for instance, because yeah. they've never had to think or generate anything unique or personal or whatever. It took me years to learn how to read poetry because poetry is this, this substantive use of language to describe a, a, a mystery, basically. Mm. And I think it's why we are uncomfortable with poetry a lot of times, because we don't get the mystery. We want it to be clear and yeah. concise and, you know, tidy and useful and cute and rhythmic and whatever else. And, and real poetry challenges you to think outside the box and stretches your language use yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Well, AI is working in opposition to that, but uh, I don't think it's bad in and of itself in a, in a moral sense. I think we're the ones that have to grow up enough to utilize the strengths of it and minimize the destructive side. Wow. But any, any tool that's strong needs protection. Yeah, uh, and the church tends to make mistakes there. You know, when, whenever absolutely. there's an advancement, uh, we, we disengage and we pull out of the conversation, we pull out of the context. And then what happens is, is we re-engage when we're comfortable, but then we have to play moral catch up. And it's like, hey, we, we disengage from this, you know, 
and now it's become a thing and now we're comfortable but we've lost our influence and now we've got to that's right so if if the uniqueness of being human is not just that we're conscious beings uh, but that we are designed like God to be creative and imaginative and and I don't think we do much to uh, redeem our imaginations I mean to have redemptive imagination if you will I think the church has kind of lost that capacity. Oh, sure. And so uh, so that, that's the disturbing part of, of beauty. You know, art, in my mind, should always be disturbing by definition. Uh, but so often it's not. I mean, I, I go to church a lot of times and it's, I'm, it's neutral. It doesn't, doesn't disturb me. Yeah. And I don't remember it, you know. And even as a pastor, I've preached a dozen sermons I, I don't remember at all. And I, I think, wow, I studied that and wrote it down and delivered it, and I still don't remember it. You know why? Because it was neutral. Yeah. And when it I, ama- it amazes me how much people overlook the artistry of God. And I, I think I don't know if that's right. just a Western, you know, Westernized way of thinking. We like things in cute boxes, and we like things to be very systematized. Um, but if God is anything. He's an artist. He's, and he's creative, and he's surprising. Yeah, and we want we want him to be predictable mm-hmm. rather than unique. And I think we keep going to him in a predictable, mechanical kind of a way, and in a in a what I would call a legal kind of a way, uh, wanting to pin him down and say this is what you promised, you know, and I can, yeah. uh, and and you failed me, versus being in relationship with him, which is variable and surprising and you know I'm surprised all the time by my own family and then if I'm honest I'm surprised by me if I'm paying attention yeah. I think where did that come from for pity's sakes why are you why are you thinking that way and why are you doing this and hello yeah who are you you know show up here so for every single one of us it's to say hey stop blaming stop right. justifying start owning start participating right. and just allow your development uh, to be a priority and something that you just commit to. And and here you can't be everything to everybody. Sorry, even though that's kind of a phrase that Paul uses. I'm taking it out of context. Yeah. Uh, this that's where hu- that's why humility sits here, gentle and humble. Only the strong can be gentle. And I I learned that teaching disabled people. Uh, Disability is doesn't it doesn't necessarily demand you be handicapped. Yeah. Right. So I had I taught in a visually handicapped field for a while, and what I learned is that they don't feel handicapped, especially if they've been visually impaired their whole life. Uh, handicap is something we put on them, not they have, and it's just crazy. Wow. I mean, I had a teacher that was. Blind, and she just ran all over the campus, and I mean, she was amazing, but she would not allow her disability to be handicapping. And so I think, I think a lot of times we just say, "Well, oh my gosh, you can't recover from that." And most people would just, I probably would crawl up in the corner and just wilt, you know. But people that take ownership say, "This is what I've got. I'm going to go with it." Yeah, that's so good.